When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good salutations, Ray. It's Good day. This week, we are going to jump into the imbalance time machine, head back to the mid-70s in L.A. where things are really spread out and people are moving there from all over and musicians and actors and performers are all heading to California because it is the land of gold for entertainment. And as we have talked about in previous episodes in the early 80s, the hard rock scene blew up in L.A. in the 80s. On the side, we had a punk rock scene that happened, and one of the most important aspects of that punk scene is a band with one letter in their name. Z? Yes, Z. Are you ready for Z podcast? (laughs) Z? No, it's not Z. Must be X. It is X, and... The fury with which they hit Los Angeles as bands like the Germs were falling apart and the Runaways were breaking up was monumental because they breathed a life into the punk rock movement in L.A. And because, as we've talked about, it's so spread out as like Hermosa and Venice and, you know, you have uh, the areas like Hollywood and you have so many different little suburbs So there really wasn't a scene, there were bands. It is the imbalanced history of rock and roll, all about the band X, an original new episode for Punk Rock Month 2022. We're into it, man. We haven't really discussed the West Coast scene, and X is the big player in the scene. In the mid-70s, you had all of the players, except for one who was a native Californian, moved to California. And who was that? That was DJ Bonebreak. John Doe, Xene Cervanka, and Billy Zoom all moved to L.A. in the mid-70s because they wanted music. Xene wanted to write poetry. She wasn't even thinking about music and sort of fell into it. Wait a minute, man. As will often happen when you get super excited about something we're talking about, you may be getting a little bit ahead of yourself. Let's <laughs> take it one step at a time for everybody like me. How did they all come together? How did John and Xene come together? How did they get together? And then how do they hook up with Billy and DJ? 
to make X. Billy Zoom placed an ad in the Recycler, which was a small rag in the L.A. area. Musicians would post looking for bandmates, looking for partners. Artists did the same type of thing. So Billy Zoom's ad basically said this. People looking to play music that wasn't bullshit. And the funny thing is, is when John Doe read that ad, he was like, wait a minute, I posted an ad like this about two weeks earlier. So he Mm. basically said the same thing. So right away you had these vibes. So they spoke on the phone, ended up meeting for practice. And John Doe walks in with his poetry writing girlfriend. And according to Unheard Music, the documentary, both Billy and John tell the story in a very lighthearted way where they say, oh, man, the bass player brought his poetry writing girlfriend to the band practice. (laughs) Same old story always is. (laughs) And she's writing poetry. And then he saw her book and said, oh, my God, she's crazy, too. And both John and Billy were laughing about this because then they were like, "Uh, we need a singer. So she started singing with them. And her poetry actually was working with the music. And Billy was still hesitant because he was like, wait a minute. I want to play music that isn't bullshit. And we have this singer who's got a lot of potential, but it's going to take two to three years to develop. But it took Mm. us two to three years to get signed anyway. So it all worked out for the better. And that's how he shared that aspect of the story in the Unheard Music documentary, which was recorded in the mid 80s. And then they found DJ Bonebreak, who was playing in a band called The Eyes with a young lady named Charlotte Caffrey, who you might know of. I think she helped form the Go-Go's. John Doe and Billy Zoom really liked the way DJ Bonebreak hit the drums. They saw him play with the eyes one night and were impressed with his hard hitting, with his grooves, with his you know rhythm and style and they were like this is the kind of guy we need to play drums so they asked him afterwards if he wanted to play with them it's and way it he said yes. sometimes, yeah. right yeah and it worked out and they all kind of started jamming together writing music and things started happening but because there was a lot of high risk with punk rock labels were a little cold at first and wanted to see what they were going to do as far as the whole punk rock music movement was going because they were witnessing the class and they were witnessing the Sex Pistols and seeing all of that as well. And at that time, X and the other punk bands like the Go-Go's and the Germs were really starting to hone their craft as well as punk bands. And the difference between X and a lot of the other punk bands was they knew how to play their instruments going in, whereas a lot of these punk bands at that time, especially in the hardcore scene, were learning as they go. Yep, there was a lot of that. And none of these folks wanted to be... In that aspect of learning as you go, they wanted to hone their craft, and they did. When we were kind of talking about this, you were talking about their first gig, but more importantly, their first practice. It was a pretty interesting story you had. Yeah, the first gig... After really working on their craft and getting it together, they finally got a gig, and Exine was really stressed out because she knew that Billy Zoom still kind of was like, ah, I don't know, man, bass player's girlfriend, yeah. But as they were about to go on stage, he walked by her, he patted her on the head and said something really cool and really encouraging, and it really 
took some weight off of her shoulders and helped let her go and fly on the stage that night. And it really made a big difference in the growth and the evolution of the band from that point on. And then in the underground scene, they started right away making noise because they were hard. They were aggressive. They were poignant. They were smart. It's worth pointing out that at this point in Los Angeles, there wasn't a scene. Like you mentioned earlier, things were spread out. There really wasn't much going on. But what X was doing was drawing fans of a sound, a feel, to them. People knew about punk rock. It had been happening, obviously, in many cities, but not in Los Angeles, not with local bands. So my point of view on this is, listening to them a lot in the last week or two, getting ready to talk about them, I really think that X reflects L.A. in regards to how they are a punk rock band, because they're not straight-up punk rock, like you said. They knew how to play their instruments when they started. But there are things about them that are also important as far as the roots of Americana establishing itself in the 70s and 80s. They came along at the right time to be accepted by that as well. So there's elements of the folk rock movement of the 70s in their music, in their rebellion against all of it musically in the 80s. Yes, and one of the few bands that was able to successfully pull off the country punk vibe or sound, there are other bands like Beat Rodeo that were really successful with it. And I think I've come across the main reason for that multi-area appeal, and a lot of it's John Doe's voice, something that actually, and I'm going to sound so unhip, that really doesn't appeal to me. I like some elements of the band X. Some of the songs are really cool, cooler and well-written than a lot of other things, more thoughtful, reflecting again, L.A. But I guess it's just John's voice I could never get my ears around. It can't deny what they mean to what L.A. became in that area of music, because before that, there really wasn't much. In fact, I have a theory I want to kick out to you, and you tell me what you think. And not just because Manzarek's involved, because Manzarek ties it together when he both produces and performs with the band. Ray Manzarek of The Doors produced their, what, first five albums. At some point in my head, I'm starting to hear that X is reflective of The Doors and what they were at their time. There was no such thing as punk rock, so to speak things were being expressed and some of them were pretty loud and nasty right so i see the connection between those generations and maybe the doors was the closest thing to a punk rock band that kind of came together in la before x came along x was heavily influenced by the doors and i've read interviews and heard interviews where i've heard john doe and xine cite jim morrison and the doors as the first la punk bands we talked about that before yeah yeah because of what he did and again it's worth repeating he would tell the crowd fuck you whip his dick out then he would tell the crowd he loved them in that same half a sentence and they'd be like what <laughs> but he was able to pull very them punk in. rock and it was very yeah. punk rock he was very aggressive with the crowd in that way and if you look at some of the live videos of x they were aggressive with the crowd too and that aggressiveness scared a lot of labels and a lot of uh radio people as well radio would not take a chance on punk rock every once in a while you would get somebody who would do like a sunday night show or college radio where they were more lenient in that way but corporate mainstream radio was not going to take a chance on a punk channel or a punk radio station 
or a punk band sometimes. They never really did with X. The people that supported them through the decades are the stations that they've developed on their own wavelength. And that's how that works sometimes. That's what makes them unique, too, I think, in my mind anyway, when we're talking about a band that has done their own thing without any large-scale commercial sales success, without any hardcore radio support other than, I would say, you know, the what I would call the XPNs of the world and the alternative stations around the country, like, you know, in Chicago, XRT, and other places around the country that have been with them through all their changes and through all the decades. But lacking more of a mainstream exposure, I really didn't know enough of their songs or enough about them to really feel familiar as I was listening through and discovering a lot of their music, a lot of which I really like. Before we take a break and start talking about the music and the bands, I say we talk a little bit about who the players are because I think they're very important in this whole scene and being but first but first this is very important from the research department marcus yes and send a note all it says is there is another x band marcus are they called x dash band no it's band of frequencies in the microwave radio region of the electromagnetic spectrum often used in engineering the x band is used for radar satellite communication and wireless computer networks just wanted you to know x is always around what we really need is flying cars jane stop this crazy thing (laughs) it's the imbalanced history of rock and roll yes we've gone off our rockers again but we're talking about the band x and we really do want to talk about the members can we talk about the poetess of course, I figured we had to start off with Christine Lee Cervanka. Exine Cervanka is who she became known as. She was born in 1956 and moved to California in the early 70s. She was at a poetry workshop when she was 21 and met John Doe. It was at a place called the Beyond Baroque Foundation in Venice, California. Exine moved out and started working there right away. And that's how they cross paths, right? Yes, it is. Even when she went to that very first band practice she had no intention or idea that she would be singing with the band she just wanted to listen to their music and write poetry when she was sitting there and they were jamming that was her plan and it ended up being so much more she's an activist and you can hear it in their lyrics of course but she's also been diagnosed with an unknown neuromuscular disease that they can't really figure out what it is and she struggled and had phases of intense struggling throughout the years with this but she's been active with her poetry she's been active with her art she's been active with her activism she's just a fighter through and through and a tough woman and a great front person for X And she was with John when the band comes together, and they later part company. But John just keeps on going, man. They and they continue to work together pretty smoothly, I think, from what I've read, after they split up as a couple. Those years were actually really tense for the band, and... 
because of that, Billy yeah, you Zoom. You can understand that, yeah. Billy Zoom ended up leaving the band for about a decade because of some of those tensions, as well as a few other issues that came up mm-hmm. that we'll discuss when we uh, talk about their discography back and forth. But John Doe, born in Decatur, Illinois, his name, John Nomanson Duche. How'd he get Doe? Was it just easier? Probably. Do you think anybody would want to introduce him as John Nominson Duche on stage? Even though it does roll off the tongue nicely, it's too much for most people. But John Doe, who's very influenced by country, which we have seen throughout the years, and he's not only been involved with doing side projects that are like country and rockabilly and Americana. He's been a huge film dude and has an insane filmography or IMDB count. It's funny you should say that because it's funny you led me around to it because that's what I wanted to talk about. I said I'm not the biggest fan of his singing voice and and I know I'm going to take some shit for that. That's okay. But I am, it turns out, quite a fan of his acting work, including his role in Great Balls of Fire where he's in Jerry Lee's band, right? He's in Roadhouse. I remember that. I'm like, wow, that's right. That was him in Vanishing Point, Boogie Nights. I'm like, Holy shit, he's in Wyatt Earp, for God's sake. And a couple other movies, too, and some TV series work, and you start realizing his face is everywhere, way beyond what he might have achieved early on as a rock star. His IMDb resume is so wonderful with the music movies like The Decline of Western Civilization. Of course, his documentary X, The Unheard Music, they did a live X concert. Also, do you remember the James Wood movie, Salvador? He had a small role in that movie as well, and that was an intense film, too. I saw that on good movie but he does weathering heights i mean he really is a skilled character actor as it turns out that's right and an author a lot of them about the la punk scene you know he's done so much he's one of those guys it seems that likes to really really keep busy in fact did you know that x was on an episode of children's hospital I did not. The doctor would joke on episodes that, oh, yeah, I play with this band. I play bass with this band. So he said one day on one episode, I'm the second bass player for X, and they practice in my garage. And sure enough, X showed up and jammed with him in his garage. Just kind of cheeky fun stuff. Hey, Glenn. What? On that part, could you please play, like, less? Actually, let me ask you something. Why do I have to be second bass? Because you are the second bass. That's why. Yeah, Glenn, you've been second base for 33 years. Yeah, well, maybe I've been unhappy for the last 33 years, John. How come none of my songs ever make the album? You know, my friends don't even believe me. I mean, I'm starting to wonder, why am I even in this band? Camaraderie? Oh, Billy, cut the crap, really? Give me a break on that one. I mean, when was the last time we all got together for a drink? Last night we had drinks, right? What? Nothing. I had all day off. That was my day off. No, we didn't ask you. We didn't go. I mean, we didn't go. We didn't go. No, you didn't ask me. You mentioned IMDB. Guess who else has a nice, healthy page on that website? DJ Bonebreak. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He's known as an actor-composer on there. He's done work on A Perfect Day, Roadside Profits, Don't Be Afraid to Pogo, which is a documentary about punk rock. So they all have multiple talents, you know? They really do. And DJ Bonebreak, being the only Californian in the crew, spent his life playing music around L.A. And one of the things that I learned watching the Unheard Music documentary was that one of the things that he did with his drum style, and if you're a drum 
drummer, you understand this. I don't really understand it, but with one hand, he would hit three beats on the snare. And then with another hand, he would hit five beats on another drum. And then with his left foot or his right foot, he would hit the bass drum on a 4-4, but he would do all of that in a 4-4 time. And he would be able to do that fast and quickly, and that helped enhance their sound. I heard him explain it. I'm telling it back to you. I don't really understand the drum aspect of it, but it would be great if there's a drummer out there who can send us an email saying this is what he did and explain it to us. It would. (laughs) But I'll tell you what. He has had some other cool stuff that he's done. He did that rancid side project, Devil's Brigade. I was reading about that. And I realized, you know, this is a guy that's been with them a long time. So he knows a lot of the guys around now. And some of these guys have been around almost as long as them, especially Rancid, right? Tim Armstrong and Matt Freeman. So they did this Devil's Brigade project, and he was in on that. I thought that was pretty cool. One of those things, you never know what it's going to lead to, but it all leads back around to X for all of them, right? Mm-hmm. They end up sticking together pretty much. They do, and Billy Zoom, the fourth player in the band, actually took a 10-year hiatus from X because he was pissed off at the tension regarding John and Xene's breakup. He also didn't like the fact that they got rid of Ray Manzarek, so he got pissed off and left the band for the recording of the fifth album, and he took a decade away, and then when they did their big two-disc music anthology, 10 years later, they had a record store signing and the band got together for the first time in forever. And it felt like old times. And then they started playing together again and slowly building it back up. So that's how that happened? Yeah. Billy Zoom, born Stuart Tyson Kindle, moved to California in the 60s and started doing session music. His father was a jazz musician. Billy Zoom always played music in their house. He started with clarinet. His family was a music family. His father, an old-time jazz musician, a clarinet and sax player who played with Django Reinhardt. His dad also rode motorcycles and played music, too. It's what they did. So you can see where that whole Billy Zoom attitude comes from in his childhood. And he really took his craft seriously. He's a multi-instrument player, even does stuff with, you know, big bands and plays woodwinds and other instruments as he's moved forward. An interesting group of musicians that have come together and they can all play. They're all talented. And boy, that chemistry has been electric. And we'll discuss the album chemistry after we take a quick break. Taking it to the bridge with bold foot socks and a quick pint at Crooked Eye. When you get thirsty, you need a beverage that you can count on. A beverage that will satisfy that thirst. And if you're a beer lover like me, and I know you are too, Marcus, nothing tops the fresh brews at Crooked Eye Brewery. They make the brews right there. You can actually look in the window of the brew room and see the brew being made. And a lot of other things are happening uh, on weeknights, various things, including Thursday trivia, uh, the Wednesday blues jam. They also have open mic night the first, third, and fifth Mondays of every month if you get that lucky fifth Monday. I can't do math when I'm a crooked eye. Not if I have like (laughs) one crooked IPA, I can tell you that. And open mic Mondays now alternates with Name That Song. Ray, I hear Vinyl Night's coming back to Crooked Eye. 
That's right. First Tuesday of the month, starting April 5th, I'll be back at Crooked Eye for Vinyl Night. Come on out and hang with us. And Marcus, they've announced a special concert at Crooked Eye May 15th. The great Philly legend, Charlie Gracie. Make sure you come spend a special Sunday afternoon with this Philly legend from 1 to 5 p.m. at Crooked Eye. Always something fun going on there. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. And, of course, in Delco at Jamie's House of Music. Pouring the cure for what ailed you in Hapro since 2014. We'll see you at Crooked Eye. Hey, folks, if you haven't checked out Boldfoot Socks yet, go to their website and do it today, boldfoot.com. And if you like what you see and you want to place an order, you can save 15% on us by entering the code HISTORY15 in the discount box. Now, Marcus, you've had some great personal experience wearing your Boldfoot socks. That is correct, Ray. I am an active cyclist. After hearing Josh tell us about his experience running a race in the desert in his bold foot socks. I had to give it a try on the bike, and they held really well. My feet didn't feel funky afterward, and after my spin class, my feet felt great. Not all wet and yucky. Wet and yucky, bad. Feeling bold, good. (laughs) Go to boldfoot.com and check out all the styles. And they've got a wide variety of styles, no matter what your mood is about your socks. And uh, colors, designs, it all fits into what you want out of a sock that holds up. And they definitely give you that support you need. I know from the times I've worn mine. Make sure you go to boldfoot.com and use the code HISTORY15 to get 15% off of your first order. Look. They're your feet. Be bold. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Time for more on the band X, on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Their first album, named after the city where they were formed, a black cover with a black X 
in fuego, like a black and white study in the words Los Angeles. Very stark way to set out your imagery there, Marcus, right? Oh, without a doubt. They made sure that you noticed what they were saying and what they were playing. They hit you hard in every aspect, visually and sonically. A label that we have to talk about at some point, Marcus, is Slash Records, and they issue that debut album produced by The Doors' Ray Manzarek. Let's talk about how that happened. The story behind their connecting with Ray Manzarek is pretty wild. Ray had read about X and had heard that they were really good. So he and his lady went to go see him play. And right. he's kind of doing his thing and just watching the musicians. And they're playing a blistering set. And all of a sudden, his lady nudges him and is like, yo, 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 they're playing your song. Yo, they're playing your what? song. My song, which one? And he, so he listened and he's like, oh, wow. Exactly. And so he went backstage afterwards and he was like, hi, I'm Ray Manzarek of The Doors and I would like to produce you. And they were like, okay. Let me ask you, do you know how long it was between that meeting and when they went into production? Because that sounds like Hollywood story right there. Perfect for a punk rock band from L.A. I'm going to say it wasn't that long because they started recording that album in January of 1980. And it was ready to go by the end of April that year. And Ray Manzarek having a few ins helped get them signed and eventually they get signed to Elektra records down the road a little bit because they're building it man after slash records signed them they actually worked a deal with reprise warner to release or to distribute the los angeles record so they got some label noise so it looks like the labels were gonna be like okay they're on a small label if they make enough noise maybe we'll take a chance on them which seems to be one of those common things that happened with small labels at that time in distribution deals. It's at this point that the world begins to absorb this band, right? And in some ways, and I would say in some very tangible ways, they became darlings of the critics and some bands, but they never seemed to amass a major following, despite the fact that they made some groundbreaking records. Why do you think that is? Corporate radio was a lot less likely to take a chance playing a band like X than the college radio stations and some of those. But it's the same thing with the labels. The labels were afraid to take a chance, too, so they had to rely on the smaller labels to take the chance on them so that they could capitalize down the road. And it seemed to be that same type of pattern with radio, where if songs did well on uh, college radio and underground radio, then maybe we'll take a chance with it on terrestrial radio and bring that music to the mainstream but x never compromised who they were and they just blistered it out for those first four years los angeles just smacking them right off the bat and the cover of a uh, soul kitchen is on there ray manzarek has played with them live quite a few times over the years the title track los angeles you have to hear it because it's such a great look at la
then, of course, there's Johnny Hit and Run, Pauline, your phone's off the hook, but you're not. I mean, they do some very smart, funny stuff as well to make their point. This is the point where I got to inject something that's not going to probably win me any new fans on this topic, Marcus. I want to put forth the notion that when it comes right down to it, John Doe is too good of a singer for punk rock which is why I think they grew as an Americana radio band and, and were embraced by those stations. I think compared to Exine, especially, his voice was too mainstreamy sounding and not in that punk rock gutter. She fell right into it, and they did balance each other out. But that's just what I was thinking about, that maybe he's too good of a singer to be in a punk band? I don't know if it's too good of a singer. I mean, his style is definitely more country Americana, without a doubt, and it complements Xene. Well, their harmonies and their duets are legendary in the music world, and people refer to them often as one of those I know. They're often lost in jail, crowd of 52 There's tuna rats in this cage of the world Women know their place, they sit home and write letters. Then they visit once a year, where they both just sit there and stare. See how we are. Gotta keep bars in between us, see how we are. We only sing about it once in every 20 years, see how we are. Oh, see how we Look at the stark differences between Xene and John and how he really brings her style, not down to earth, but flavors it or gives it a bigger sound. After the success and the noise of their first album, Los Angeles, they went right back into the studio and recorded their second album, which was called Wild Gift. Ray Manzarek again produced it. Some of the songs that were big, these were worked on during the Los Angeles sessions like Adult Books. White Girl is one of the songs that came out of this one, and you've got to listen to that song because that song epitomizes who X is and the whole L.A. punk scene in so many ways. Universal Corner, another great one. The Once Over Twice, really good stuff on that album. And while the first album and the third album made more noise critically, you can't discount this album and its importance as well. Because, again, another 13-song, 33-minute record that just pummels you. 
in X style. Part of that album is sampled by the Chili Peppers on the song Good Time Boys. And the lyrics even mention John Doe calling him the man whose voice is, quote, made of gold. So that's where the influence starts to flow out from X to younger bands in the L.A. world universe, really, because it stretches out pretty far geographically. I'm so glad you mentioned the Chili Peppers and Good Time Boys and their reference to John Doe because that is still one of my favorite Chili Pepper songs to this day. I love the Mother's Milk record. But after Wild Gift, again, they did some touring, played some dates, and went right back into the studio and recorded their third album, Ray Manzarek again producing Under the Big Black Sun. And this album actually had a song that got a lot of MTV video Play the Hungry Wolf. I used to see that one on MTV a lot, and it was more nighttime and evening rotation, but that song got a lot of video play, and then whatever the alternative shows they were doing in the middle of the night as well, you would see it there. Also, Under the Big Black Sun, another great tune, Dancing with Tears in My Eyes, Real Child of Hell, just a great album, and again, another barn burner from X that really brings that punk scene to life. The thing about punk rock scenes is they're often underground. And with X, at this point, they're still underground. They're critical darlings. They're falling all over each other in writing. And even some of the people who are traditional critics, right? But it's still slow growing as far as people going to buy the album. Well, at that point, it was vinyl, but then become CDs. And their success long-term has come through the fact that generation after generation of people, however they found their music, have and have continued to support them and go see them. And they probably haven't lost too many fans along the way is a pretty good bet. I'm going to guess that their fan base has actually gotten bigger. Their old school fans have stayed with them all the way through. And again, in 1983, because X was putting music out at such a blistering rate, they released their fourth album, More Fun in the New World. And this album started getting them a little more notice, and songs like The New World were getting maybe a little more college radio play. When I got to speak to Xene and John in the mid-2000s, both of them said, we really want to get to the point where we don't ever have to play New World again live. pretty intense and it's pretty heavy and they're very pissed off but it's one of those political songs that they actually really want to stop playing live so it's up to us 
ultimately it is, buddy. Yep. No matter how you want to look at it. Yep. And then the song Devil Doll was another one that got a little bit of uh, MTV play as well. And Eddie Vedder and the Super Suckers did a cover of it at one point. Eddie Vedder has claimed X is a major influence on him, along with Sonic Youth. His roots are definitely tied in punk. Everybody has their own path to where they are today and where they're going. You know, it's just a step along the way, but it all gets you there. Whatever you listen to growing up, there's no wrong answers, right? That is true. And then Richard Gere made a very sexy, racy movie called Breathless in the 80s, and X's song Breathless was the theme song. Next up, they release an album called Ain't Grand in July 1985. And the real surprise about this is the producer, a guy who cut his bones in heavy metal producing and helped to create many multi-million sellers and who started his career as the guitarist in the German metal band Accept. I'm talking about Michael Wagoner is the producer for their next album. I know that's crazy. And... The label wanted them to go with somebody different because they didn't feel like they were getting the polished sound out of Ray Manzarek that maybe the label wanted. So they brought in Michael Wagner, and he helped change their sound a little bit. Burning House of Love was one of the big songs that came out of that album. And it was also the time when Xene and John Doe were in the process of splitting up. Billy Zoom was getting pissed off. I don't think Billy Zoom was very happy with this record at all and left soon afterwards because he was done with all that tension stuff. So Tony Gilkison comes in for the next one. Right, And they've got a little help from Dave Alvin. Not only did he produce that next record, he also joined the band and played with them. And his big songwriting credit that he brought in was 4th of July to that album. Other than that song, the band was so disappointed in this album. They felt like it wasn't who X was. But the name of the album is See How We Are. <laughs> it's so weird, right? Here's the problem. I look at this. This is their run, really, when you're looking at it. This is six albums that they've made in the 80s, in their prime territory. And this is where it comes apart with Billy. And obviously, when a couple breaks up inside a band, it's always going to be difficult. But they carried on. And I got the feeling that his colleagues and working partners, they manage that whole part of it. But I look at what they've done. They've made little impression as far as album sales in UK, the other major market for alternative bands. And in the US, never cracked the top 50. Now, they've sold some numbers and they've probably done well enough to live well enough. But that is why I think it's tough for everybody to get their head around it because people aren't familiar with even their best work, except for maybe a few songs. That is true. You mentioned the album sales, Ray. In the first six months after Los Angeles was released, they sold over 100,000 copies of that album right off the bat. But it never went further than that at the level that I guess they needed it to for them to get pushed harder or embraced more by the labels. One other fact about See How We Are, Ben Montench played keyboards on that record. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, cool. He's friends with that band and has done some other stuff with John Doe over the years as well. 
doesn't seem like they were afraid of bringing in a, an extra session guy here and there, and they used Ray in that regard for a long time. So it's good that they went to one of the best out there ever in Ben Montench. And then there's a break, five, six years by my count, before they release Jesus. Jesus Christo, what was going on all that time? They were trying to figure out what they were going to do, where they were going to go, and how life was going to take them forward at that point. They were all doing their things, but it seems in some ways that John, DJ, and Xene had some unfinished business and wanted to get these songs out. So they grabbed Tony Gilkeyson to play guitar, and Tony Berg produced it. And it was not received very well. It got panned by all the critics, so they had to figure out what they wanted to do after that. You know, to be a pioneer or somebody who's in the pit making shit happen, making shit change, there's a lot of different ways it can go. And far too many artists, musicians, performers go out on their shield, man, and never get any recognition that these guys have gotten, that they've earned, that they deserve. As a band that helped to draw attention to the fact there were some pretty pissed off people in L.A. despite all the palm trees and sunshine. People could understand if Seattle was pissed off when that whole thing started, right? Because of the weather, you know, being all gray and stuff, yeah, and no raining kidding. a lot and all that. In L.A., what do they got to be mad about? Think about it. They have the sunshine, so they're sunshiny pissed off, whereas in Seattle you have a gloomy, doomy pissed off. That's Or any city you've got, like that dirty, wet sidewalk feeling yeah. and smell, you know? And in L.A., it's a lighter. Maybe that's it's all sunshine and jelly beans in L.A. That's what it is. I'll tell you one thing that that can explain, and that is Black Flag and fucking Hermosa Beach. <laughs> Hermosa's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. It's never cold. It's never too hot. It's beautiful, nice breeze. You never really get too you know, worn out by the heat in the summer, and everybody likes going there. The sand's nice punk rock man they found something to jam on oh they were pissed at suburban culture at that time they were so pissed at suburban life in a lot of ways they still are man so <laughs> we gotta dig into that whole thing it's the subculture that comes down the line that we got to talk about but there in the beginning they were almost like the lone soldiers out there in los angeles doing punk rock and trying to build a beachhead for the other angry youth, mm -hmm. you know? And after the Jesus record was deemed a failure by the label, they released the Unclog record in like 95, which was an unplugged album, basically. They did two nights of live music, recorded it acoustically, and then put an album out because that was the hot thing. And then in 97, Beyond and Back, the anthology was released. That's when Billy Zoom rejoined the band, and things started going up from there. And it was nice that that moment happened because it was an important reunion that needed to happen. It's all about X, the band that planted the flag for punk rock in Los Angeles a long time ago. And for everything else that happened around that time in different areas in California or in other parts of the country, they helped to break into an area that really didn't have that kind of musical thing or much of a musical scene at all. L.A. proper. 
after the success and the great energy from them getting back together for the release of that anthology, they started playing together and releasing a few live albums. The big live album, Live in Los Angeles 2005, the 25th anniversary of the Los Angeles record and a fantastic recording. Then in 2009, they did two Christmas songs, Santa Claus is Coming to Town and Jingle Bells. They continued to play live and help the younger punk bands and guide them and provide guidance and leadership and still want to get their message out. And then finally, in 2019, they went back into the studio, re-recorded four old songs, including Serrano de Berger's back, and I know I'm mispronouncing that. And they've been doing that one quite a while, and we've got demo versions of it and other demo versions of it from the early albums. So they put a version of that on Alphabet Land, their album in 2020, and after re-recording those four older songs, they started writing music together, and it really flowed, so they were like, hey, we gotta do this album, and it turned out to be a fantastic album called Alphabet Land, and once things open up again, they'll be back out on the road doing their thing. Bunk Rock Month continues on the imbalance history of rock and roll. This has really been a lot of fun, Marcus, because it's one of those episodes where I get to watch you geek out for like the better part of an hour about a band that you love at a high level. And in this case, your interest in it really got me listening to find what I like about them. So thanks for that, bro. Hey, you bet. We do know that you do not dig John Doe's voice. <laughs> but I do think that he's a hell of an actor. Dude's and he is a pretty good singer, too. Again, there's so much music to check out from X. And if you listen to X alongside some of your favorite punk bands, I can guarantee you will hear X's influence in the punk bands that you are listening to today. You will hear it. Punk Rock Month continues. Next week, we will re-release one of our really great episodes about the roots, the uh, precursors of punk rock, Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground next week on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And thank you for your support and celebration of Punk Rock Month here on the podcast. And if you would like to share any X stories with us or give us any feedback, you can always email us, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can hit us on our Facebook page, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We're on Twitter. It's at Imbalanced Histo. No R-Y, and you know why. Also on Instagram, on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. That's what we are. That's who we are. And we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. We are also a production of Dark Doc Media. So till the next time we get together, punk rock or not, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. This is the imbalanced history of punk and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.